A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. Song About Putting a Bird in a Pie by Luke Samuel Yates A relaxed mind is a creative mind, says my inspiring teabag. Yours advises to empty yourself and let the universe fill you. We pick up the empty flowerpot on the road and a man in a dressing gown eating tomatoes leans out of a window and demands that we put it back. I ask him if it's his pot. Put it back, he shouts, put it back. Each smile is a direct achievement, I remind him. He replies that gratitude is the open door to abundance. We carry on walking. We get onto the future. When should we panic? Reading the tea leaves, you say that happiness arrives when we overcome the most impossible challenge. Your bag has exploded. You look at things in such a way that you are not distracted by being looked at, looking at things. The blackbird sings a phrase, then repeats it like a monolinguist talking to a foreigner. You can't believe anybody would even write a song about putting a bird in a pie. The man from the takeaway under my flat has climbed into his bin to compress the rubbish in order to fit more in. He walks from one side to the other then back again, like an animal trapped in the hospitality industry. Luke, where did this poem come from? Hi, Mark. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Um, Yes, well... Maybe it's worth starting with the tea bags. Um, so mm-hmm. the dialogue in the poem is mainly actually uh, the slogans from the tags that are attached to several brands of herbal tea bags uh, that are commercially available. And so while I was interested in writing about this kind of state that I think we sometimes live in where we're kind of looking for answers um, and the problem isn't that there aren't any um, it's that there are too many and none of them seem to make any sense. And so right. what do you do in the middle of a cost of living crisis when your tea bag says, empty yourself and let the universe fill you? So, That's a good question. Yeah. So I found myself in the middle of a, of a pandemic, as we all did, um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, living with my uh, friend who also didn't want to live alone for the end of the world, drinking all this tea and coming to terms with the idea, as uh, we all had to over a period of time, um, and a lot of speculation that this might be like wh- what it might be like from now on. Maybe it would just be on and off, kind of living living indoors, lockdowns mm-hmm. forever. And everything was going on as normal, which was something that I was already trying to come to terms with in my poems um, with respect to things like climate change. So 
it felt quite incredible and quite confusing that we all had to carry on working if we were lucky enough to still have work, yeah. even though it was the end of the world and many of us had kids with us and thousands of people were dying and it was the government was run by this strange cartoon character and this very strange sort of self-proclaimed genius sidekick. And my tea bags were kind of talking to me via the medium of these little tags and saying mm -hmm. the most profound things every morning, this kind of unsolicited but perhaps crucial source of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So so I started writing them down and collecting them because I thought they were this really kind of potent and exciting mixture of mystery and blandness. Um, and these slogans or idioms, I don't know whether um, – these philosophical tea bag manufacturers just make them up as they're uh, printing the little tags or whether they hire a, a, um, someone like a monk to speak sometimes in exchange for um, tea, maybe. But these, these little snippets of advice sound incredibly poignant and important because they concern things like love and the universe and, and the self, you know, like, like poetry in a way. Um, mm -hmm. But I was worried that they were just tea bags and perhaps they were wrong and, and maybe it was a risk to live my life in accordance with them. <laughs> so every neighbor can be your teacher, kind of one of them, one of them said, and which was interesting because I just joined the neighborhood WhatsApp group. So it kind of mm -hmm. felt strangely prophetic. And then one said self-reliance is the greatest art, which at first I kind of thought was contradictory because I just joined the neighborhood WhatsApp group. But on the other hand, I didn't think much of the government policy around COVID at the time, so self-reliance took on a different meaning for me. Hmm. And then I thought, well, that's the kind of pernicious thing about self-help and, and this kind of proliferation of messages for self-improvement, that we aren't really meant to think about um, where where it comes from or what the underlying philosophy of, of it is, um, or, or how suspiciously well-aligned New Age spirituality is with the business world. We're just meant to kind of reflect on the advice in an abstract way and learn whatever we can from it. Because of course, it's important to be open-minded and not think that we know the answers to everything already. But that's what leads people to thinking that these kind of strange internet men um, uh, um, have something to tell them about the world and about women, isn't it? Um, so the pickup artist community and Tate and... Um, the lobster guy, Peterson, all use this self-help style of writing, which I think everyone is relatively open-minded towards because we all want to be better people. And there's a slightly religious feel to what's going on. Um, here is some knowledge, make what you will of it, learn from it in whatever way you can. This is really different from the way that we read poetry, I think, which tends to also involve a lot of uncertainty um, between um, the the poetry and, and the reader, but it's asking the reader to be very inquisitive in that process and to question a lot. Um, but I think these authors tend to use the self-help register to smuggle back in some very familiar assumptions about the world. Um, hierarchies are good after all, we shouldn't fight or question them. We should just try and crush our competitors and then mate with some female lobsters. So Peterson is like this strict and slightly frightening but eloquent father figure who tells us reassuring things like stand up straight with your shoulders back, um, which is, of course, uh, fairly good advice in terms of avoiding back pain. 
But when you read what he has to say, it turns out he's making a comparison between hierarchies among lobsters to suggest that social inequalities, perhaps of all kinds, are natural and positive for evolution. And that, although he stops short of spelling this out deliberately, suggests that patriarchy and racial inequalities, among others, are just normal, natural and positive for the continued flourishing of the human species. And this relies on a, a very selective and creative reading of evolutionary biology, ignores evolutionary anthropology, and I think tricks the casual reader who's just looking for some reassurance, really. So the poem starts with a conversation between two people that's actually a conversation between two tea bags, which had kind of happened to me because a particularly odd tea bag tag had said one day, You are my cup of tea, to which I said back, No, you are my cup of tea. And then I realised that somehow the teabag had won by forcing me into actually having a conversation with it. So when the poem starts, a relaxed mind is a creative mind, um, says my inspiring teabag, yours advises to empty yourself and let the universe fill you. We pick up the empty flower pot on the road and a man in a dressing gown eating tomatoes leans out the window and demands that we put it back. I ask him if it's his pot, put it back. Each smile is direct achievement, I remind him. And, and so this poem starts with thinking about advice for life and the kind of protagonists are sort of trying to trying to help each other but but quite helplessly and i think the tea bags are meant to insert kind of a little bit of calm into our otherwise frenetic existence like a little meditation that comes kind of free with uh, the herbs and the antioxidants but actually ironically they're just another one of these kind of thousands of messages um that we're getting most of them actually unsolicited, like those videos that start playing before we've even pressed play when you're kind of scrolling through social media. So it's the end of the world, but there's still work to be done. And, you know, listening to you talk about this poem in the context of the pandemic, it strikes me that quite a lot of your poems in the book have this sense of the surreal and the absurd how many of them were pre-pandemic? I mean, it was was it just that the pandemic heightened that quality that was probably already there in your work and, and gave you plenty of material to work with? Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it was something that that kind of was already there, um, so that they're quite surreal. And um, I'm kind of interested in um, Ulipo and 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 the surrealists as a kind of movement and and I think that probably comes through, but I think often I'm interested in surreal. I mean, I guess this is similar to to the surrealists, but um, that that it's kind of everywhere. That the everyday life is kind of very strange, even while it's very banal and normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, partly, what's strange about it is that it it's. It, it 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 keeps on going no matter what, doesn't it? So yeah. so it, as I was as I was sort of saying, you know, we were we're in a situation where where we're all quite concerned in quite an existential way, um, and yet we're all doing very very normal things that we usually do with mm-hmm. that as a sort of backdrop. And there's a kind of irony and a kind of tension to that, a kind of a weird kind of cocktail of of feelings that that evokes. I think and. You know, the, the speaker, the narrator of the poem, is is walking through this landscape. There's quite a few journeys in the book, and, and things are happening. Um, this man leaning out of a window and demanding that we put it back, <laughs> and, and he's shouting, 
and it's just kind of part of the scenery, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is. Um, it is, and it isn't. I mean, you're right. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of journeys. There's a lot of movement in the book. I think it's partly because I write when I'm traveling, and I write on trains, on buses, uh, when I'm away, um, and and a lot of windows as well. Yeah, yeah. I've noticed quite a lot of people looking out of windows or being looked in at. Yeah, yeah. It's that kind of that that boundary between the kind of inside and the outside, and the kind of the mm-hmm. private and the public. And the kind of the personal and the societal that I'm kind of often quite interested in trying to explore. Um, uh, so I think that's the kind of the windows are, are that they kind of symbolise that that kind of that connection that we have to everything else, to everyone else, and and we might feel very alone. Um, we might um, more people live alone now than ever have done um, before. Um, but the window sort of the window also show shows you shows you the lives of of people. We have these new um, tower blocks in Manchester, and they you can you can kind of see in the evening where where the kind of the the, the light light falls, and then there's there's all these little boxes of people uh, leading their own little parallel lives together, and I kind of find find that quite quite exhilarating, quite interesting. I mean, the man in the window eating tomatoes. He's kind of part of the background, but he's also part of the foreground, I think, in the poem. Because he's mm-hmm. he's not just a, an angry man. He's he's kind of like the angry man. You know, this mm-hmm. kind of lo- lonely, sad, but politically quite um, uh, combustible character exercising mm-hmm. this tiny bit of power that he might have arbitrarily in order to maintain his kind of sense of control over the world with all that kind of rage and righteousness that, um, yeah, the political leaders of the main parties currently are really keen to listen to and organise their political par- uh, programmes around. And so you might think, well, what this angry man needs to listen to is these wise, um, urbane, uh, middle-class teabags. And so the poem kind of implausibly lets that happen. And so the conversation mm-hmm. between the characters morphs into this vague teabag life advice um, because that, you know, and... and people like uh, Peterson is probably what he'll conclude is commercially or politically available to soothe his anxieties because the good stuff's a bit quieter and probably a bit more subtle and your your podcast isn't um uh, hasn't made its way to to him yet so this angry man it in the window will only be a matter of time <laughs> it will get to him um so the so the man in the window eating tomatoes he's he's a person who lives alone as i have been on and off for most of the last 6 years um and as I said, this is kind of we're, we're in good company. It's I think it's a third of households in North America and Europe are one one person. Mm-hmm. Um, that's three times bigger than 1961. Um, lots of them are older people, but lots of middle aged divorced men as well. Some people mm-hmm. very affluent, but actually really poor. It's a really kind of polarized cohort, a really kind of complicated group. And so, in the kind of third third kind of stanza, the poem. Um, uh, goes we get onto the future when when should we panic and this is that anxiety about being carried along in time and finding yourself out of place too partly the the angry man's kind of feeling feel that but also the narrators where you find yourself or where you find yourself collectively you kind of feel out of place and we're not actually panicking because it's more like we're wondering if we should panic because the time scales don't feel quite right for panic whether 
is the possibility of having kids slipping away or the kind of um, existential anxiety about climate change that I mentioned or becoming a country in which it's not kind of legally permitted to protest anymore. It all kind of happens at the wrong tempo. Um, and we all have to keep on going to work if we're lucky enough to have work and everything just keeps on happening as normal. It's like there's different levels of information operating in the poem. On the one hand, there's there's the evidence of our senses about daily life and what's happening. And then there's the, you know, the, the overarching dialogue that you've talked about from politics and the internet and tea bags. And it's all kind of, but it's all being broadcast on the same bandwidth, so to speak. It's all seems to be part of the same poem. It's a bit like John Ashbury, where, you know, he mixes up a lot of different registers and, and things, or Kurt Vonnegut, where there'll be some unspeakable act happening on a bed in a room in a motel, but he'll give just as much weight to the description of the empty can of soda pop on the on the windowsill while this is going on, that, that it's kind of, mm. almost you're giving the same weight to things that feel like maybe they shouldn't have the same weight emotionally. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's really. Uh, I, I think I think I can I can see that. Um, I can yeah I can see that connection. Um, and I think Don DeLillo is somebody who does that as well. The the American mm-hmm. novelist um, uh, re- really well. I guess it's it's part of what's sometimes called postmodernism. This kind of you know idea of a kind of leveling of different kinds of language and different different kinds of messages not kind of privileging one over the other yeah and how that feels to live you know when you wait wait where where you are you you are being bombarded with messages still you know um it's very it's a very confusing experience isn't it and i think the tea leaves are a really nice example of this because you you talk about the messages printed on the tea bags but then later on you you talk about reading the tea leaves which in the good old days, used to be, you know, somebody looking at actual tea leaves swirling around in a pot or a, a cup. And reading involved a lot of projection or intuition or channeling, depending on which explanation you prefer. But here it's much more literal. You are reading what's written on the tea leaves. And there's, I don't know, there's something delightful happens in my brain when I read that line. That on the one level it's much more explicit and spelled out, but on another there's there's all these kind of vibrating levels of irony around it. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's quite it's quite playful, I guess. Um, and I guess that that protagonist, the kind of the you in the poem, um, is also kind of the the I think it's kind of where the 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 hope is in the poem. Maybe mm-hmm. um, there's a kind of a a bit of a kind of turn in the book, and I think there's a lot of hope in the, in, in the book, a lot of playfulness and romance and um, and movement, like I was saying. But um, in the poem, I th- there's this kind of quite observing, um, principled character who's looking at things within the poem. So there's the um, the lines: "You look at things in such a way that you are not distracted by being looked at, looking at things." The blackbird sings a phrase, then repeats it like a monolinguist talking to a foreigner. Um, you can't believe anybody would even write a song about putting a bird in a pie. So this character's looking at all this, and they're actually sort of saying, "No, it's not okay to put a bird in a pie. That's obviously a stupid thing to do, <laughs> or write about, perhaps." And mm-hmm. it's not the biggest grievance. Um, 
uh, it's not the wrongest thing in the world, but she's got a point. And so I think I was trying to write about these little glimpses of clarity in among all the kind of advice and uh, arguments with angry monolinguist men who need to keep things the way that they never were. And so I think you could say that there's some kind of ethical possibility in that looking, um, in that kind of contemplation and in that kind of clarity, in that kind of observation, in that willingness to to say no, to call something, in that kind of refusal to be distracted from a sense of injustice. And I think that's what poetry often does too in a, in a very subtle and very be- beautiful way. And there's also a lot of fun in the syntax of, you know, you look at things in such a way that you, you are not distracted by being looked at looking at things. Again, you know, my brain has to perform a kind of, what is it, the escapologist maneuver where they get out the straitjacket. You've got, to, you've got to kind of untangle yourself to make sense of it in a really delightful way. But then we end up with this even more surprising and delightful final stanza of the man from the takeaway climbing into his bin and walking up and down on the rubbish, Um, which I think is an urban scene that we've all glimpsed, but I would never have thought to end a poem with it. How did that arrive? Yeah, I mean, from from seeing it and and uh and and kind of love loving this loving it as a kind of a spectacle but then thinking about it it's it's sort of about carrying on and needing to get by but also needing to sort of transcend and, and get out change the circumstances that we're living in um so it's, it's kind of it it feels like it's about the little tricks and negotiation strategies that we have to deal with everyday problems um there's a French anthropologist, Michel de Certeau, um, who, who talks about the kind of tactics um, of the kind of everyday, these things mm-hmm. where we're always seeming to kind of outwit or exceed or evade the kind of grids or the strategies of power. Uh, private bin collection and logistic, logistics giants like the, who, who run these companies probably don't count on as actually squashing down our commercial rubbish by getting inside our bins. So it's a kind of fun and exhilarating image. And there's... I think, like, rightly, a lot of celebration in um, of this kind of idea of ordinary people getting by and this kind of heroic quality placed on any kind of sense of resistance to these circumstances. And obviously, resistance is the basis of change. It always kind of has been, um, mm-hmm. or kind of previously unthinkable change that's happened um, uh, has has kind of r- arisen out of it. But the guy is still walking around in a bin. The bin kind of hasn't been abolished, right? The, yeah. the, the industry of hospitality <laughs> that he's kind of trapped in with terrible hours and working conditions, um, uh, you know, is, is still, it's still kind of operational. It's still, it's still very much in the world. So I think I kind of wrote the poem and this, this kind of chunk of it seemed to sort of start to um, echo along with this about these kind of anxieties that are associated with sort of trying to trying to live life normally in very in rather precarious and strange times trying to kind of include a sense like like you say of kind of how surreal that that is in in quite a funny way that this sometimes um is experienced as right that's it so listening to you it's it's really foregrounding for me the the kind of the latent politics in the poem but it's not a polemical poem you're not hitting us over the head with it with all of this, you're kind of playfully confronting us with a lot of the absurdities of it. And I think the ending is another wonderful example of this, where you say, 
that this guy walking up and down in his bin is like an animal trapped in the hospitality industry. So technically, it's a simile, and you're comparing him to something. But actually, when you do a double take, you realize, well, hang on, he is an animal trapped in the hospitality industry. So you're kind of comparing him to himself in a way that that just heightens the awareness of just all of this weird stuff that we've taken for granted. And how did I end up in this bin on a Monday morning? As, you know, as, as being a, a kind of a productive thing to be doing. As I said, this is a delightful poem. And when you first read it, it's very, it's very easy to read. It's kind of deceptive. But then I looked again and I realized every stanza is six lines, which is a really crude way of drawing attention to the fact that a lot of thought has gone into the the construction and the composition and the little decisions in the poems. Could you maybe say something about how the poems started out and how it ended up in this final form? Yeah, sure. Um uh so I'll probably get to the probably get to the the kind of the stanzas last um if I may, but because it sort of it began um playing around with these teabag quotations. Um so I started collecting them, um, uh, and then and then those quotations as well about how much people like tea, um, you know. So keep keep calm and drink tea, um, mm-hmm. or you can't you can't buy happiness, but you can buy tea, and that's the next best thing. So these sort of these these um, and then the characters initially um, in in the kind of the first draft that I had were all smoking. So this the poem. In, initially imagined cigarettes rather than tea bags with these slogans attached to them and bits of advice on them. Uh, so it was very, very surreal. It was, it, and possibly it would have been called, you can't buy happiness, but you can buy cigarettes. And that's, that's the next best thing, <laughs> which I thought was sort of interesting to swap out in a kind of Ulipo way, this thing mm-hmm. that no one disapproves of. It's, it's so uncontroversial, isn't it, tea? Um, and which gives you lovely, inspiring messages. Um, and swapping that out for something which is which is now relatively recently in in historical terms widely frowned upon and and now normally includes messages and photographs about how it will slowly destroy and disfigure your body before it kills you, yeah, yeah. which is fascinating because you can't buy anything else really quite as contradictory as that. Um, mm-hmm. But then I read that to a friend and they said they liked it, but why were the cigarettes all talking? What was going on with that? <laughs> um, so I left so I left it for a bit and then came back to it and I thought, well, I'll just make them tea bags again i i guess like and see what happens and then it, it started to become the dialogue the dialogue sort of started to become colonized by by the tea bags which was sort of what something that interested me because it, it was exactly as you were sort of you were talking before about kind of ashbury and, and that kind of overlaying of different kinds of language and messages i was really interested in um and I had the conversation with the man about the flower pot, which is which is sort of something that happened on the street down from me. And I had the guy in the takeaway in his bin. I also had this long stanza about the narrator talking about the Spanish Civil War with his dad while doing the washing up. But it didn't really belong anywhere, although it kind of potentially drew out some of the the kind of political heft of the of the poem a bit more explicitly. But it was too explicit, um, uh, and 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 started to feel quite strange. So. It started to settle again um, once the, the the tea bags became the kind of conversation, um, and then the six line stanzas I liked because I, I I write a lot in four in four line stanzas. They're kind of probably the standard kind of form in, in the book is, is those, mm-hmm. but the six lines seem to seem to kind of pull 
seemed to kind of pu- pull pull the reader in or, or um it seemed to be more conversational it seemed to be more open-ended it was it was like the kind of the 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 first stanza kind of pulls pulls you into the second by by the way that the the enjambment works by the way by the way that the kind of line breaks and um and so it kind of fitted it felt a bit more prose poemy when i was writing it and I, and i did experiment for a little while with it as a as a prose poem um because it's quite kind of quite sort of narr- narrative it's not it's not very lyrical um uh there, there, there aren't rhymes in, in this one and um so i kind of tried it out as prose and then it was it was too dense and too kind of stodgy um so the kind of the six line stanzas it kind of fell into that and and then and then it and it felt it felt right i guess so there was that moment where you you tried on various shapes and sizes and forms and it just felt yeah 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 there's it, it it kind of it's it's kind of one and a half four line four line standard it's one and a half quatrains isn't it it's a, it's a, yeah um and so it it kind of it leaves things feeling a bit more open ended and a bit less set, a bit less uh um uh, settled upon, just decided. It, it, I think it invites it invites more um, of a of a kind of open ended reading when it, in in this kind of form. Yeah, there's plenty of room for things to spread out and happen, and it's it's quite expansive. And yet, I also love the way that you you bring us up short at certain points, like that that line, "Your bag has exploded." Full stop. You know, just after we've had all the the stuff about. The future and panicking and tea leaves and whatever, and suddenly there's like a hard stop. So we can't get too comfortable in the mm. forward motion. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and and that kind of the the end stop and the kind of the the abruptness is something that um, that I, that I think's really important for for what I'm trying to do in in the book. Um, uh, there's a, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of few. A few quotes that I kind of think of when there's the kind of Levitoff, Denise Levitoff, the the, the um, uh, that idea that poetry is is about kind of being in in love with endings. I, I think. Um, oh, that's delicious, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and and a and a Chekhov kind of um, something that Chekhov said to his brother when he was writing about his approach to um, to plays. He said, "You know, I, I keep everything calm." Calm and settled, you know, through the first through the first scenes, and then I and then I punch the audience in the face, which is an incredibly violent kind of way of describing how, how he uh, how he worked. But there's a kind of with Chekhov, there's a there's this kind of pathos and and kind of bathos as well, like this um, sorry super kind of literary kind of language, but this kind of sense of like undercutting the reader's expectations and deflating deflating them deliberately. Uh, well, I really like that description because I think there is a a certain pathos in living a life which is pure bathos, which is a lot of what we find ourselves in the time. You know, there's no there's no real dignity in being the guy in the bin. It's not like you know King Lear was had his faults, but at least he had this kind of tragic dignity. I can't remember what Yeats described it, some kind of tragic joy or whatever. We don't get any of that. We just get bathos and. Uh, and and advice from the tea bag and and another set of instructions from the universe. So um, maybe that would be a good point to to hear the poem again and receive the instructions all over again. Yeah, sure. Thank you, Luke.
Song About Putting a Bird in a Pie by Luke Samuel Yates. A relaxed mind is a creative mind, says my inspiring teabag. Yours advises to empty yourself and let the universe fill you. We pick up the empty flower pot on the road and a man in a dressing gown eating tomatoes leans out of a window and demands that we put it back. I ask him if it's his pot. Put it back, he shouts. Put it back. Each smile is a direct achievement, I remind him. He replies that gratitude is the open door to abundance. We carry on walking. We get onto the future. When should we panic? Reading the tea leaves, you say that happiness arrives when we overcome the most impossible challenge. Your bag has exploded. You look at things in such a way that you are not distracted by being looked at, looking at things. The blackbird sings a phrase, then repeats it like a monolinguist talking to a foreigner. You can't believe anybody would even write a song about putting a bird in a pie. The man from the takeaway under my flat has climbed into his bin to compress the rubbish in order to fit more in. He walks from one side to the other, then back again, like an animal trapped in the hospitality industry. Song About Putting a Bird in a Pie by Luke Samuel Yates is from his debut collection Dynamo, published by Smith Doorstop. Luke Samuel Yates has published three pamphlets, was a Poetry Society foil young poet on four occasions, and was selected for the Aldborough Eight. His first collection, Dynamo, won the 2022 Poetry Business International Book and Pamphlet Prize. He has recent poems in magazines including Poetry Wales, The Rialto, Anthropocene, Ambit and The North. And he has performed at Aldborough, Ledbury, Kendall Calling and on Radio 4. A lecturer in sociology, he teaches and researches political movements, technology and consumption practices. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at 
amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman. A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative, with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem. <laughs>